0: Welcome to Bible Insights with Wayne Conrad. God's Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Today's topic, mountain-moving faith in context. We have been considering a passage of Scripture that many people have scratched their head over and some have thought, you know, I can use this passage of Scripture And if I can just get my faith right, if I know how to activate it right, I can basically do whatever I want if I simply ask God with faith, my faith. I've got to activate my faith. Well, obviously, I'm talking about those passages of Scripture where Jesus uses an illustration that's exaggerated to drive home a point. Obviously, I'm talking about that passage that says you can say to a mountain, move from here to there and it will be done and nothing will be impossible for you. Here's the, here's the actual verse. The disciples came to Jesus privately. This is after they had failed to cast a demon out of a, a young boy or, and heal him. And they said, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said to them, because of your little faith, For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. On a previous podcast, I indicated that we never see where Jesus actually told a mountain to move from one location to another, nor did he ever tell a tree to get up from the ground and be rooted in the sea, another illustration that he uses What Jesus is doing is using hyperbole to really drive home a point. And evidently, this hyperbole really stuck in the disciples' minds because it's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And last time we looked at the one in Luke, and today I want to look at it in Matthew in context. We must interpret Scripture in context. First is the immediate context. So the immediate context are the, are the words that I just read to you, but the immediate, immediate one is the story, and that story is connected to another story. So we have to go all the way back to the beginning of Matthew chapter 17 to get the context of this passage and what happened. Now Matthew 17:1 is the story where Jesus takes three of the 12 disciples with him. He takes these three up on the mountaintop with him for them to witness the transfiguration. That is, that period of time when he will be on the mountain and the glory of God will not only be on him, but the glory of God will shine out through his very body. And while on that mountain, Elisha and Moses, prophets from of old, will appear on the mountain with him, talking to him about his soon exodus in Jerusalem, referring to his crucifixion that is forthcoming and then his leaving the world after his resurrection in the ascension. Let me just read the story. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Then that means the other disciples are not on the mountain. They're at the foot of the mountain. Okay. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to him Moses and Elisha talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elisha. Now, he's probably referring to the Feast of Tabernacles. that was forthcoming at this time of year. And so that's probably why this came to his mind. But while he's saying these things, while he's still speaking, and behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified, as they should have been. <laughs> but Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Wow, what a verse. They lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. The law, represented by Moses, Elisha, representing the prophets, they all point to Jesus, but Jesus is the one we need to see. Well, they're coming down the mountain. It says, and as they're coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples ask him a question. Then why do the scribes say that first Elisha must come? And you say, where did that come from? Well, it came from what they saw on the mountain, right? They saw Elisha and Moses appearing. And now they want to know, well, why? Why then do the scribes say that first Elisha must come? And Jesus answers. He says, Elisha does come. And he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah." has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they please. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them with John the Baptist. So what Jesus says is that the prophet Elijah and the prophecy about him coming has been fulfilled. It's fulfilled there on the mountain. They saw Elijah with him, and it had been fulfilled in the ministry of John the Baptist who came in the spirit and the power of Elijah as the forerunner for Jesus the Messiah. But now at the foot of the mountain, they came and they came to the crowd. A man came up to, them, to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son for his seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and he came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. Now we now should we noted that the man came interceding for a son whom he perceived to be sick. Now he's sick to the point that he has evidently, some kind of suicidal tendencies in that are somewhere against his will, whatever. He seeks to be thrown into the fire or into the water to be burned or or to be drowned. But Jesus perceives that there is demonic activity with reference to this boy. And so Jesus first rebuked the demon, and when he rebuked it, It came out of him, and when it came out of the boy, the boy was healed instantly. Now, we can see from this teaching, there is sometimes the involvement of the demonic in the sickness of people, especially in these kind of situations. But now the disciples come to him privately. They want to know another question. Why could we not cast it out? This is the, what? Nine disciples that were at the foot of the mountain. Why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said to them, Because of your little faith. So that, that's his answer. But then he goes on For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible. For you. Now he said, because of your little faith, and then he gives us an illustration a grain of mustard seed. Now, a mustard seed is extremely, extremely small. He's saying it's not the amount of faith, but it's where faith is. Where's faith located? Now, I want to point you over to Mark, because Mark also tells a story about the, the young boy being healed, delivered and healed. And it's interesting that when Mark tells his story, Mark 9, 24 through 29, Jesus does not have these words about the mustard seed or the mountains moving. Here's what he says there. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. So Mark gives us what Jesus actually said to the demon to make him leave. He perceived it was a mute and deaf spirit that was causing this boy not to be able to speak and not to be able to hear. He said, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. Now, Jesus can do that, in his own name, because he has power over demons. He has power over Satan. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, that is the demons, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse. He looked like he was dead. And so most of them were saying, he's dead. You can hear the murmur going through the crowd. He's dead. He's dead. He's killed him. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he rose. Now, that's interesting, because you need, sometimes when people misuse these verses, they will tell to the person to do certain things. But notice that Jesus lifted him by the hand, and when he did so, he arose. Jesus' own power in touching this boy and lifting him up. And when He'd enter the house after this incident is over. When Jesus entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? All right, same question, the same group of disciples. But this time, Jesus does not use, according to Mark, he doesn't have this illustration. It doesn't mean Jesus didn't say it, but Mark is not recording it because he's, he's zeroing in on what the lesson is. Why could we not cast it out? And here's Jesus' answer. He said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, now we can notice from that that there's different kinds of demons and demonic power, and some are harder than others to cast out. But this particular kind that was on that young boy, it could not be driven out except by prayer. Well, what kind of prayer? That, that's really what's, what's behind so much of this. What kind of prayer? What was wrong with the disciples that were at the foot of the mountain that they couldn't cast the demon out of the boy? Well, we're not told exactly, but we can use our reasoning to determine something that may have been going on with them. You see, well, Jesus was absent. He went up to the mountain with three of the disciples and he left the nine down there. So the master's presence was with him, was not with him. But Jesus had previously given the 12 his authority and his name to cast out demons and to heal the sick and to preach the good news of the kingdom. And they had done that on numerous occasions. And then they came back and reported to them. We can read about that, for instance, in in Luke 10, I believe it is, uh, where he had even 72, he did this. So they had done this before, And Jesus had not been present with them. But for some reason, on this particular occasion, he took three of the disciples with him and he left the other nine at the foot of the mountain. The disciples seemed to have not had faith in their ability to cast it out without his presence and in his name because he was on the mountain with three of the disciples and they were down below. So perhaps it was that they just didn't believe that they had all that they needed to do it. And it also, because this demon seemed to have been very strong when it, maybe they didn't even perceive there was a demonic power involved in the boy's sickness. That's all looking at the immediate text, the verse within the paragraph, and its extended text, that is the stories that is connected with. And also comparing Matthew 17 with Mark 9 in the same incident, of the healing of the boy at the foot of the mountain. But you know, when we do that, we, we can understand that Jesus is teaching us about prayer, about its importance and its power. But prayer that has power is prayer that is given in the name of Jesus. And that doesn't simply meaning his name, speaking his name. It means the authority of Christ being used in the praying, and that involves a broader context than we have here. So when we interpret scripture, we not only interpret it by means of the immediate context and the connected context, but we must also look at the broader context of other parts of scripture that talk about the same thing, and that is about prayer and about God answering prayer, God giving us that which we ask in the name of Jesus. So when we look at the broader context, we have to consult other passages of Scripture. But before I go there, I want us to understand this one central thing. It is not the amount of faith that makes the difference. It is the object of faith. And the object of faith must never be in ourselves or in our ability or our spiritual gifting it must always be in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who he is and what he has accomplished for the salvation of mankind on the cross and by his resurrection and ascension into heaven. Well, what does the broader context about prayer have to say about this? Well, let me mention that Matthew also uses this same illustration about prayer prayer and the the fig tree in Matthew 21. So he uses this hyperbole again, and that's on the occasion when he had entered into Jerusalem in what we call the triumphal entry, and then he left. We've recorded Matthew 21, 17 through 22. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. He spent the night there. In the morning, as he's coming back, As he was returning to the city, Jerusalem, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Now, in the next podcast, I'm going to talk about this fig tree. Okay, but here, Jesus goes on. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. You see, that's where the the message title is coming from, mountain moving faith in context. And here's his point, verse 22. And whenever or whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Okay. Now, that doesn't necessarily clear up what our passage is. It, it almost adds another layer, doesn't it? But remember, we must, con- we must interpret the verses and the words in the context. Immediate context, the connected context, and the broader context of the book, the passage, and the book's of the New Testament, and the word of God. And we have a broader context about prayer and its power and prayer in the name of Jesus in the writings of Jesus. That's recorded for us in John's gospel, for instance, but also by two of his disciples. One is James, his half-brother, who didn't believe him at, at the time that these events would occurred, but who came to believe him after the resurrection and became the leader in the Jerusalem church. And we also have a recording by 1 John. Now, John was present. He was one of the disciples on the mountain with Jesus, and he's the one who heard all of these sayings. So let's look at what other scriptures have bearing on this. Well, let's go to James, okay? James has this to say about prayer and faith. James 1, 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. Now, people misuse this scripture. And they'll try to say, you can't have a, 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 even a speck of doubt. You have to drive that doubt out. You have to do such and such and such to be sure you don't have it. You have to speak words. You have to do this. You have to do that. They have a whole formula so that you can be sure you got it. But look, the subject of the prayer reference is seeking wisdom from God. We look at the context James 1, 6 does not stand isolated. It is talking about asking in faith for wisdom from God. James 4, 3. James also talks about prayer and asking. James 4, 3 says, You ask and you do not receive. Okay? Why? We do ask and we don't receive. Why? He says because you ask wrongly. You ask for in the wrong way. In front of the wrong motives, for the wrong purpose You ask wrongly, what is it? To spend it on your passions Or your lust, to spend it on your desires That's what he means In other words, it's a self-centered prayer For something you want For yourself To spend it on Yourself And James says God doesn't have to answer that kind of prayer That's not the kind of prayer God's looking for What kind of prayer is he looking for? we well, looking for us to pray, the desires of our heart that have been changed, <laughs> to be after His own heart. Consider Jane. I mean, Psalm thirty-seven, verse four, with me. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. You see if we delight ourselves in the Lord, we will seek after that which is pleasing to God and is pleasing to him, bringing him glory and praise, that which he delights in. And as we seek him, the desires of our heart will change so that our heart desires good, good for others and glory for our Lord and God and for advancement of the kingdom of God. Jesus also Gives us other instructions about prayer. Jesus tells us we must pray in Jesus' name. Now that doesn't simply saying the name Jesus in prayer. Although I certainly think we should do that as Christians, because we go to the Father through the Son. But it's not about a formula. It's about praying on the basis of Jesus' own authority, and that means that we. Pray in accordance with the will of God. Because this is what we hear about our Lord Jesus. Jesus did always those things that pleased the Father. He was always seeking to know God's will in every situation. And hearing from the Father, he moved accordingly and he prayed accordingly. So it involves praying according to the will of God. For the will of God is what Jesus always did. And we read about that in John 6. Thirty-eight, But now, the Apostle John states this truth explicitly for us. In 1 John chapter 5 and verse 14, he writes, If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Our requests must be congruent with the will of God. There are other scriptures on prayer they must be factored into our understanding of Jesus' words concerning receiving what we ask for. James 4 talks about the fact that we, we make a lot of plans. And then we, we say those plans so confidently as if it's certainly going to come to pass. But James wants to remind us of a truth. Instead of saying we will definitely do this or that, you know, all of our plans, he says you ought to say if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. And as it is, you boast in your proud intentions, and all such boasting is evil. And that applies to prayer too. And that doesn't mean we have to always preface the prayer with if, if it's your will healing, but that has to be certainly a factor in our minds and hearts. We're seeking the will of God, and we, we pray for God to heal because it, it's delight His to heal. But he doesn't always heal. And ultimately, this side of the resurrection, all of us will die unless we're translated when Christ comes again. And even then, it will be a sort of death because we will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. So as long as we're in this mortal flesh, there's going to come a time when the prayers for life to be prolonged will not be answered. It will only come to pass when the resurrection takes place. But until then, there are many times when God may be delighted to heal people of prayer by prayer. Many sicknesses, even terminal illnesses. God has turned around and can turn around. God can do miracles and does do miracles in answer to believing prayer, but he does it when it is according to his will and his glory. So 1 John 5, 14 says, and this is a confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. We know that he hears us, and if he hears us, we can bank on the character of God. God is one who has the authority to do and the power to do whatever he says. And God is the one who has goodness always at his heart. We do those things that glorify him. We want to do that which glorifies him and that which will advance his kingdom. God hears us and God delights in doing this well. And God delights in bringing to pass those things that glorify him and that result in our spiritual growth into his image. 1 John 3.22 informs us, And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Now, 1 John also tells us what those commandments are. The commandments are that we are to love God and we are to love our brother in Christ. Those are the commandments Jesus gave, and those are the commandments at verse John 3, the commandment to believe in Jesus as the Christ and the commandment to walk in love and to love him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Look, if, if we do these kind of things, we can pray very confidently that God will intervene and that God would do that which seems to us to be impossible. Because all things are possible with God, when it is his will, when it is for his glory, and even when it may be for our good, though at the moment we may not know what's for our good. This has been Wayne Conrad with Bible Insights.